0: let's just start right with verse 27 today. I'm going to jump right into 1 Corinthians 12. I'm going to start with verse 27. It says this, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. You are the body of Christ and individually members of that body, body parts. Last week we looked at the importance of realizing that each member of the church family performs an important function in the overall health of the church body. God's given a variety of gifts to us for the purpose of caring for one another. And when we engage in various acts of service, each of us exercising our various gifts, then we're functioning in unison with one another. We have a a common goal. And so Paul says in verse 26 from last week, if one member suffers, then all suffer together. Or, if one member is honored, all rejoice together. And that's how a healthy body works. Every part is working together for the good of the whole. I gave this image last week of if if you're working on something and you smash your hand with a hammer your whole body is immediately engaged in a unified act so the the mouth is screaming the eyes are squinting the uh, legs are collapsing so that you can get down the other hand is coming around to grab this hand and immediately apply some sort of pressure to everything is working together because the body is one a unified organism that's how a healthy body works. And this, this week we're going to spend some time discussing some of the specific body parts, or in the context of 1 Corinthians 12, specific spiritual gifts that God has given to the body. So the, the body part and the gifts of the Spirit are two ways of talking about the same thing. The body part is just an image to talk about this variety of gifts. There's two gifts that I'm not going to be covering today as we work through this gift list. We've already worked through a gift list in verses 4 to 11. Actually, I think it was verses specifically verses 8 and 10, 8 through 10. That's our first gift list and then this is the second gift list in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There are two gifts in here that I'm not going to talk about, as I've already shared with you. I'm not going to talk about the gift of tongues or interpretation of tongues, and I'm not going to talk yet about the gift of prophecy, because there's so much in chapter 14 about tongues and prophecy that I want to save the whole discussion for when we get there. So we're going to go there, we're going to talk about it, but not quite yet. The other reason is because I'm just not ready to talk about those two gifts. I need to study some more. There's some extremely complex issues that come up with those two gifts, and I need to do some more reading and some studying. So we'll we'll deal with those more in chapter 14. Today we're going to start off by uh, looking at this supposed hierarchy of gifts, as some say, or a ranking of gifts. Let me show you what I'm talking about here. It comes from verse 28. Read this with me. God has appointed in the church, first, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Now, when you take that list and you see a continuous line of thought between verse 28 right there And verse 31, listen to how this sounds. God has appointed first this, second this, third this, and then verse 31, and desire the higher gifts. The train of thought is first this, second this, third this, and desire the higher ones. If you read that as a single train of thought, it it sounds like a ranking of some sort or a hierarchy of gifts. And I'm just not sure what to do with the enumeration. I was talking to Amy, uh, I think late, maybe not last night, maybe the night before, and saying, I don't know what to do with this enumerated list. And I'm just being honest with you this morning. I got to the end of my studies and I said, I don't know what to do with this. And that's where I am this morning. I'm not sure whether or not it's a ranking. I'm not sure whether or not verse 31 is referring to the list in verse 28. Some people would say what you have here is a hierarchy of authority in the church. First, you have the apostles. Then you have, second, the prophets. And then, third, you have teachers. Well, it doesn't really make sense because. The second position, the prophets, is ranked above teachers. But as you read the rest of the New Testament, it's the teacher, actually, who has higher authority than the prophet. So a ranking of authority doesn't really make sense. When Grudem says, well, it's not a ranking of authority. It's a hierarchy of benefit. That is, here's a ranking of the most helpful gifts to the church. First this, then this, then this. Desire the higher gifts. That is, desire those that give the most benefit to the church. And actually, that makes a lot of sense of the context, but there are some problems. The the main problem, or a main problem, is that apostleship... Therefore, would be the number one gift to be desired. Desire the higher gifts. Apostleship is number one. Well, not only is, as we'll see a little bit later today, not only is apostleship a closed category, but when Paul picks up his train of thought again in chapter 14, he doesn't say desire apostleship. He says desire the second thing on the list, to prophesy. So it doesn't really, I don't think it it really quite makes sense. The other problem with that is that if the higher gifts that we are to be desiring, according to verse 31, consist of the ranking of gifts in verse 28, then what about all the other gifts that Paul has already mentioned in this chapter that don't show up in the gift list in verse 28? Like, for example, the gift of an utterance of wisdom. Where does that fit into the ranking? or the gift of an utterance of knowledge where does that fit into the ranking or the gift of faith where would that fit into the this rank if this is a ranking where would those fit in so why oh yeah yeah okay so here's the third problem i just don't understand how profit profits would be more beneficial to the church than teachers and so it just doesn't, it doesn't quite make sense to me. So I can't quite follow Grudem on there. Even though it makes contextual sense, I still, there are still some things I would have to untangle uh, in my mind to make sense of it. D.A. Carson says, well, no, it's not, it's not a ranking. What you have here is the order of time. That is, first, God gave to the church apostles, with the disciples. And then after that, he gave at Pentecost prophecy." And then after that, he gave teachers and so on. Well, the problem with that view is that even though it might be fair to say that prophecy shows up at Pentecost, number two on the list, I think we have to say tongues showed up at Pentecost also. We definitely have to say tongues showed up at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Well, tongues is last on the list. So that doesn't really make sense. Gordon
1: Fee says, this is just a list.
0: And Paul's just saying, God gave a lot of gifts to the church. First, he gave apostles. Second, he gave prophets. Third, he gave teachers. He gave the ability to do miracles. Then he gave the ability to... And he's, he's enumerating it, but he, on this view, he, he says, hey, let's just not make too much of the list. It's not really meant to be a ranking. And if that's the case, then here's the train of thought in the chapter. Verses 4 to verse 26 says, Paul says there's a variety of gifts. Verses 27 to 30, Paul provides some examples of those gifts. And then in verse 31, Paul begins the next stage of his argument. In other words, the paragraph ends at verse 30. Then Paul begins the next stage of his argument, and he says, Now desire the higher gifts, but he hasn't told us what those are yet. And then you go to chapter 14, where you find Paul does define what the higher gifts are now i'm not perfectly satisfied with what gordon fee says here but i'll tell you what i like about that it turns our attention to chapter 14 to define the higher gifts instead of right here to the list in verse 28 which just seems to me to bring up a lot of problems i think it might be a distraction to look at the list in verse 28 and try to decide which one of those gifts is the higher gifts Paul says, "Desire the higher gifts, and you 're supposed to go up to that list i mean here 's one problem: which one of those are the which ones are the higher gifts? Paul just listed eight gifts which one count which ones count as the higher gifts that we 're supposed to pursue? Is it just the first three the first four is it everything but tongues? I mean which ones are higher well you can 't even desire the top ones, so i don 't know all kinds of problems for me. But when you go to chapter 14, what you find is that the higher gifts are very clearly articulated as the ones that build up the body, not the individual. And I think at the end of the day, that's kind of where I land on this. Pursue the higher gifts, that is, pursue the gifts that are higher according to the definition that Paul eventually gives in chapter 14, namely those that build up the body. And Paul says we should pursue the those gifts, which is an interesting command, isn't it? Pursue certain gifts. We're going to come back to that whole idea. So, okay, I don't know what to do with the numbers, the enumerated list in verse 28, but that doesn't mean we can't talk about the list. and we can't talk, It doesn't mean we can't talk about the gifts in that list. So that's what I'm going to do basically the rest of the time. I'm just going to walk through the gift list and hit on all of these gifts and say this is what I think this gift is... Uh, is, and uh, I'm going to do that for all of them, except for tongues and prophecy. And I'm also going to go back to the first gift list in in verse 10 and cover a gift that we didn't talk about when we were in that passage, namely the ability to discern spirits. Okay, so here's our first gift in verse 28, and God has appointed in the church first apostles. Okay, let's see if this thing's going to stick with us today. Not yet, at least. Okay. Apostles. And here I'm completely leaning on Wayne Grudem and his book, The Gift of Prophecy. Sometimes the word apostle is used today as a very general reference. It's okay. I just tried to wake it up. It, it, we'll see if it'll, it'll if it'll pop up. Sometimes the word apostle is used today in the church to refer to um, a pioneer missionary or a church planter. Just a very general reference, we might say that William Carey was an apostle to India or something like that. Um, the Bible sometimes uses the word apostle, or apostolos is the Greek word, in a, in a, in a very general sense, meaning something like the word messenger. So let's see if, we've, if we can awaken this thing now. Hmm. I'm not surprised. Here we go. John chapter 13, verse 16. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a apostolos greater than the one who sent him. And the ESV translates the word apostolos, messenger. Just a general word that means someone who is sent. So sometimes the New Testament uses the word that way. And in that sense, I suppose you could say that there are still apostles in the church today. But the Bible's use of the term apostolos is almost always much more narrowly defined as an office or as an official position in the early church. And and in this sense, there are no more apostles in the church today. It's this technical sense of the word that Paul uses here, And what I want to do is take a a few minutes to just explore a little bit about what it was that the apostleship was, so that we have a better understanding of how it functioned in their day, and what the implications are for us still today in the church. And in the early church, from what we can tell, there were really two qualifications for apostleship. Number one, you had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, meaning you had to see the resurrected Jesus. And the second qualification was that you had to be specifically commissioned by Jesus Christ as an apostle. So let's, go, let's take each of those. Let's talk first about this idea of being an eyewitness to the resurrection. I just want to show you this in the scripture. We can see it in Acts chapter 1 when the disciples are replacing Judas after his suicide. So Judas is one of the original 12 apostles. After he betrays Jesus, he kills himself... And then the apostles, the 11 that are remaining, they realize we need to replace Judas. And so note here what the new apostle is going to be doing when he gets put into his function.
1: Man, okay, let's see.
0: Okay, that's good. There it is. You won't believe this, but I have to push the backwards button in order for it to go forwards. You know, it's, a, it's just, you just work on it until you figure it out and there we go. Here it is, they're replacing Judas. So, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. When the apostles are choosing the 12th apostle after Judas' death, they're actually making sure that this person has been a witness to the whole public ministry of Jesus. But what I really want us to see here is what the apostle's job is going to be. And it's in that last section. The apostle is going to witness to the resurrection. That's what an apostle is, being called to do and that actually seems to be the crucial factor in the qualification for apostleship and that's the reason i say that you, you might if you if you went just from this text and said well it sounds to me like the qualification of an apostle is that you had to be there for the entire public ministry of jesus which would exclude paul and barnabas probably and and others but it doesn't seem like maybe in this situation that was necessary but it seems like in the rest of the new testament the qualification actually is that you had to be a witness to the resurrection and that's seen in the fact that when paul defends his own apostleship he appeals to the fact that he has seen the risen christ so in first corinthians 9 he says am i not an apostle have i not seen jesus our lord That's what he appeals to. I saw the resurrected Jesus. He does it again in chapter 15. Then he appeared, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, after his crucifixion. He appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So again, he's appealing to the fact that he saw the resurrected Jesus. And the reason that he's doing it is to validate his apostleship. I was the last one, he says. And he appeared to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So the first criteria was that you had to witness the resurrection. It would seem from the New Testament evidence at the end of the day. The second criteria was that you had to be commissioned. Jesus had to appoint you to be An apostle. In fact, the word apostle simply means one who is sent in its most general definition. One who is sent. But the kind of commission that the apostles are given as apostles was not a general charge. It was a a specific task that was specifically assigned to a select group of men. You can see it in several places. Let me show you one example here in Matthew chapter 10. And verse 2 says, the names of the 12 apostles, or apostolos, so there's your word, the plural is actually apostolone. The, the names of the 12 apostles are these, and then Matthew names the 12 apostles. And then he says, these 12, Jesus sent out, or apostolo. So an apostolos has to be apostello, sent out. An apostle has to be sent out. Of all the people who were following the ministry of Jesus, and there were more than 12. But of all those
1: people, 12 were apostles, and they were
0: sent out uniquely for some purpose. Here's another enlightening example of the fact that the apostles had to be chosen and sent by Jesus. Acts chapter 1, verses 24 to 26. Again, here's the context. They're replacing Judas. They prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two... So they've got two guys in mind. And what's the criteria that these two guys have, been, have to fulfill? They have to have, been, they have to have seen the whole public ministry of Jesus, and now they're going to testify to his resurrection. Which of these two show us please which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place and they cast lots for them and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles and what i want you to show here or what i want you to see here is that they're asking God who have you chosen as an apostle
1: Now here's the point. The
0: people are choosing from two men who have been there from the beginning. They've seen the resurrected Christ. And yet that's not all that qualifies you for apostleship. You have to be chosen in addition to that. It's a group within the believers that has to be a person who has seen the resurrected Jesus and they have to have been chosen they have to be commissioned and that's why paul makes a big deal about the fact that he too has been chosen he also is appointed he doesn't want people to think i'm just a zealous christian who's got a leader personality and i don't want you to think that i'm just coming in and taking over things i want you to know that i am a servant of christ jesus called to be an apostle I have an assignment. I've been commissioned. Romans 1 1. Galatians 1 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. First Timothy 2 7. I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. So an apostle was an eyewitness to the rex- resurrection. And two, they had to be specifically commissioned by Jesus Christ. And from what we can tell in the scriptures, it was a fairly, fairly limited group of men that included. The original 12, minus Judas, plus Matthias. You've got, the, you've got the 12. You have Barnabas and Paul, according to Acts 14.14. 14. Both of them were regarded as apostles. You have James, the brother of Jesus. Now, James, the brother of Jesus, was not one of the original 12 disciples. And yet, in Galatians 1.19, apparently something happens to Jesus' brother after Jesus rises from the dead. And this man ends up taking an apostleship role in the early church. And then perhaps you have a few more. Romans 16.7 may indicate that there were more. Uh, some people say Timothy uh, may have been an apostle or Silas, according to 1 Thessalonians two six. But from what we can tell, there is somewhere around 15 men in the early church. Maybe a couple more. But about 15, about 15 fellas, Paul being... The final one appointed, according to 1 Corinthians 15:8. Last of all,
1: he appeared to me. The least of the apostles.
0: This is the only gift, therefore, in this list that has clearly come to an end. I'd say it's the only gift in, 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 1 Corinthians, in the 1 Corinthians gift lists. It's the only gift that I think we can safely say, okay, that one has come to an end. And when we get to chapter 13, we'll go into that issue a little bit more. So, what's an apostle's job? What were they sent to do? In a nutshell, the title of apostle was used, and I'm going to quote Wayne Grudem here, was used throughout the New Testament of those men whom Christ sent with his authority to found and govern the church and write for the church the words of the New Testament scriptures. The job was to found the church. Their job was to govern the church, and their job was to write the New Testament scriptures for the church. Which means that these guys are the foundation of the church of Christ. Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. The apostles are the foundation of the church. In fact, just to put some imagery to that, listen to this description of the Bride of Christ in Revelation 21. As you may know, the Bride of Christ is a reference to the church. And in Revelation 21, the Bride of Christ, the church, is also being described as the New Jerusalem, a holy city. Bride, church, the holy city of God's people. And as John describes this holy city, Look what's at the foundation of the city. That's not what I'm looking for. I should say Revelation 21, 14. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The foundation of the city, the foundation of the bride of Christ, the foundation of the church is the 12 apostles, which is interesting. Paul Apparently Paul is not going to have his name on the foundation of the city. <clears throat> he does say the same thing in Ephesians 2.20. The apostles are the foundation of the church, and then he says that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. So, there you have it. If you've ever wondered why it is that Christians treat the written words of the apostles, that is, the New Testament, with the same respect that we treat the words of God himself, it's because we believe that the apostles were sent in the authority of Jesus Christ to found the church and to govern the church and to instruct the church in
1: what she ought to believe. God
0: gave some to be apostles for the sake of the common good, for the sake of the building up of the body. And what a gift they have been to the
1: church. That's our first gift. God has
0: appointed in the church, first, apostles. Second, prophets. Chapter 14, I'll get to it. Third,
1: teachers. Okay, unlike
0: apostles, this term teachers does not designate an office. In the church. It doesn't designate an an official office like elder or deacon, which are official offices. Um, But rather, it's a reference to those who exercise the gift of teaching. Some people have this gift, and people who regularly exercise that gift are regarded as teachers. It's, It's a gift that is required for those who aspire to the office of elder or pastor or overseer. In in the scripture, pastor, elder, overseer are all the same office. Che is a pastor here, just like I am a pastor here. But the gift of teaching, even though it's required for the office of elder, is not limited to those who are in the pastoral office. Does that make sense? The gift can be had by those who aren't in the pastoral office. And judging from Paul's use of the verb to teach elsewhere in the scriptures it's a gift that can be exercised both by men and women as long as women aren't placed in the position of teaching men from the scriptures in the local church according to first uh, first timothy chapter 2 verse 12 now that's a topic we're going to have to come back to in chapter 14 when we get to the issue of uh, whether or not women are allowed to judge prophecies and so we'll come back to that notion Teachers are explainers. It's an easy way to to think of it. Teachers are explainers. They interpret and they exposit, or they teach. They explain what is the case about God's dealings with the world through Christ by the Holy Spirit, because it's a spiritual gift. Anthony Thistleton says, "Teachers." Uh, explain what is the case about God's dealings with the world through Christ by the Spirit. It's not the same thing as providing some musings on on what the text says. It's not the same thing as sharing or testifying about how a certain truth or a certain scripture has impacted my life. That's not what we would think of as teaching. It has more authority than that because it calls the church, catch this, teaching calls the church to adhere to an authoritative standard of belief. The teacher is constrained
1: by a standard. A body of
0: beliefs or teachings. And that standard must be or that body of beliefs, must be faithfully interpreted, it has to be faithfully understood, and then it has to be communicated in such a way that the content of what is being said accords with the body of beliefs from which the teaching comes. Does that make sense? We might say it this way. A teacher
1: must faithfully teach the
0: teachings that have been given to the church. There's a level of authority here because there is a standard that must be adhered to and communicated to the church body. Here's what God says. And this is why Paul says to Titus that it's a requirement for an elder or for a pastor to, quote, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that this elder may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine or teaching and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So the pastors or the teachers in the church have to be sound in their teaching so that what they teach is consistent with the body of beliefs that have been given to the church and so that they can counter beliefs that do not accord with the teachings. Of the scripture. It's worth pointing out that James says that not many of us should presume to be teachers because teachers will be judged with greater strictness. They are assigned the task of explaining what we ought to believe. It's a high level of of accountability for the teacher because of that. You're presuming to tell God's people what they ought to believe. Now, where are they getting that? Where, What body of information, what body of beliefs are they transmitting? And it's the Bible, of course. The, the teaching comes from the scripture. That's where you find the system of beliefs that report and explain the life and the words and the training and the instruction of Jesus Christ. Additionally, it's in the New Testament that we learn how to interpret the Jewish scriptures, which we call the Old Testament, in light of the person and the work of Jesus. So that the whole Bible, therefore, provides for us the content of what the Christian is told to believe about the maker of the universe and his dealings with man kind through jesus christ and it's therefore the teacher's job to explain that to us to interpret and to communicate the authoritative teaching of the holy scriptures for the church of god and god gave some to be apostles and it's from them that we get that teaching it's from them that we get that standard in Scripture. And then he appointed some to be teachers in order to pass on the apostolic deposit to the church for the sake of the common good. So God gave some to be teachers. He gave some to be apostles. He gave some to be prophets. He gave some to be teachers. Okay, we've already talked about the gift of miracles, which is next in the list. And we've already talked about the gifts of healings. Next is helping. Helping. There's one commentator translated it. Helpful deeds. It's the only use of this word in the New Testament. And so we have to kind of take our our translation and and make a judgment based on other uses in Greco-Roman society. And uh, it's generally a term that just refers to all kinds of assistance. Uh, It could be physical assistance. It could be spiritual assistance. These are people in the church body that are uh, doing selfless acts of sacrificial love for the sake of helping out another person in the body or other people in the church body. This might be the family that gets great joy out of providing babysitting for another family. This might be the woman who anonymously left an envelope with a gift card in your mailbox. This could be Uh, those of you who have services or or areas of expertise and you have used those things to to serve other people in the church body, whatever it looks like, this gift that is given to people gives them some sort of, I think, uh, unusual perceptiveness to people who are in need. You can see it. You can feel it. You can sense it. People who are in need, some, they're in, they're in a, uh, they, they are maybe in a season of weakness of some sort. Spiritual weakness, physical weakness, emotional weakness. They have areas in which they are in need, and you tend to move into that situation and help you minister to the body. You, you have this gift of helping. Now, in some sense, we're all responsible for that type of thing, but I think some people are especially gifted at this. And God gave some to be helping for the sake of the common good, and, and may God give that in abundance to his, to his church. We, that, is, that is a gift that is, has powerful abilities to build up the church body. Those who are gifted in helping, what
1: a powerful gift. One more here in verse 28
0: that we're going to hit. And it's it's this gift of administrating. Administrating. Again, it's the only occurrence of this word in the New Testament. And so we go to uh, uses of the word outside the New Testament in Greco-Roman culture. And it, it refers to acts of guidance or direction. Actually, this word is... Is primarily used for the act of piloting or steering a ship. It's the normal way that, that this word is used.
1: And we translate it in the ESV as um, administrating. The King James Version translated makes it governments. The ability to
0: to navigate and direct, like a like a ship captain would, so don 't think when you hear administrating don 't think merely typing skills and alphabetizing files it 's more it 's more robust than that it, it, think think Anthony Thistleton says, think the ability to formulate strategies, think providing structure and guidance think. Forms of leadership that pilot the community or individuals through choppy situations by providing order and direction. We, we might even say, just to use a different uh, image, think shepherding. People are very good at helping people navigate choppy situations. Uh, And and you might be in an official position of of the church using this kind of gift. uh, Or you might not be in an official position of leadership. And yet, God uses you to help counsel people and shepherd people and help them navigate difficult situations, administrating types of gifts.
1: And God gave the church administrators, you
0: might say, for the sake of the common good. Various kinds of tongues is next in the list, but we're not going to go there, okay, but what we are going to do is go back up to verse ten because I promised you that I would come back and I would I, I ran out of time when we were going through there, and there was one gift that i didn't get to, and it was the gift of distinguishing spirits um, distinguish the the ability to distinguish between spirits now some people think that that's a reference to the ability to judge prophecies, which is where the Text is going in chapter 14. It's going to talk about some people are able to do this. I don't. I don't think that's what that's a reference to. Uh, I think it's a little more straightforward. I, I think I'll, here's what Wayne Grudem says. I, I agree with Grudem. He says it's the enhanced ability to recognize the influence of the Holy Spirit or of demonic spirits
1: in a person or in a situation. So
0: that's not a. That's pretty much what it sounds like, the ability to distinguish between spirits. Um, And I guess, what do you say about this? Power is no proof of the Holy Spirit. Power is no proof of the Holy Spirit. There are uh, impressive forms of power in the world. There are supernatural types of experiences in the world that you may encounter or may have heard of, but it's no guarantee that you're dealing with the Holy Spirit. It's no guarantee that you're dealing with the Holy Spirit. You may remember this story in Acts chapter 16 where we're told about a girl who's following Paul around, and it says that she had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. I mean, if this girl, if you heard the kinds of things that she could tell you, it would probably blow your mind. That stuff's out there. There are people who, through, through the influence of demonic activity of one sort or another, have powers that would blow your mind. And this woman, this girl, had abilities to do that, but it wasn't coming from the Holy Spirit. Paul had some perceptiveness to that, and he fixed the problem by casting out the demon, and suddenly she lost her powers. And next thing you know, her owner—her owners. She was a slave girl. Her owners were really upset because they were making a bunch of money from this girl, and she could no longer—she no longer had these powers. Power is no proof of the Holy Spirit. Another example: Paul tells the Thessalonians, referring to the Antichrist, that the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. So at some point in human history, some sort of demonically inspired and empowered world leader will rise, the Antichrist, and he will do things that would blow your mind. But power is no proof. Of the Holy Spirit. And some people have a Holy Spirit granted ability to spot that better than most of us.
1: Now, if you set this alongside 1 John 4, 1-6. I
0: think you start to see how this works. Or at least some of how it works. Beloved... Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So there's one test. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children. You are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world. And the world listens to them. Now catch this.
1: We are from God. Who? This is John. John is an apostle. We are from God.
0: Whoever knows God, catch this, listens to us. Apostolic authority, apostolic governing of the church, apostolic teaching for the church. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth. And what you have here is the test of apostolic authority. Do the things that this person teaches, advances, promotes, do they line up with the testimony of the apostles, which brings us right back here? How do you test whether or not this spirit is from God? You set it across the grid of the scriptures, and that will help you to know whether or not they are from God which is amazing because it means that seven of the ten gifts that we've looked at carefully, seven of the ten gifts of the Spirit that we've looked at, seem to work in direct correlation with a person's familiarity with and meditation upon the Word of God. Seven of the ten. The only three that don't directly correspond to some extended kind of understanding of the Word and meditation in the Word are uh, the gift of helping, and the gift of healings, the gifts of healings and the gifts of miracles. But all the rest of them work hand-in-hand hand with a person's extended meditation upon familiarity with the Word of God. And that shouldn't surprise us because we read a few weeks back, it's the Word of God that makes us competent by equipping us for every good work. It's the Word of God that makes us competent. So the gifts of the Spirit are working hand-in-hand hand with the Word of God which is no surprise. Well, the scripture gives other gifts that I don't have time to go into. Romans 12 gives us a few different gifts, the gift of service, the gift of exhortation, the gift of contributing or generosity, the gift of leadership, acts of mercy, an evangelist, the shepherd teacher. And uh, perhaps at some point we'll be able to, to dig into some of those. There's a lot of overlap. In fact, you may have noticed that even within these gifts, there's some overlap with one another. Uh, and that's why we have to be careful that we don't make, I think, super sharp distinctions. Verses 29 and 30. Let me just read these to you. The point's pretty simple. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? The answer is no. So that's, In other words, different gifts. Different gifts for the body. Verse 31 then, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. We talked a little bit about what the higher gifts are. I think chapter 14 is going to help us take that apart. But what I want to do in closing today is simply point out that Paul has called us to desire gifts. But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And there are two things I want to say about that. Number one, we have a responsibility to desire gifts. What does that mean? What does that mean? Verse 18 said, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. So if God chose and arranged each gift, each member, then how come in verse 31 we're being told to desire certain ones? Anybody feel a little bit of a tension there? God chose and assigned. And then in verse 31, he says, desire certain gifts. And I think if you're feeling attention there, and I have felt a little bit of attention there, I think it's because of an assumption that we're making. Um, So here's the assumption that maybe some of you are making. Here's the assumption that I've been making. If God is the one who makes the choice,
1: then I should be, disinterested
0: and effortless in the reception of my gifts somebody anybody making that false assumption? don't raise your hand anybody making that false assumption if god makes the choice then i should just be disinterested and uninvolved in the giving of the gifts because he's going to choose what he's going to choose and he's going to assign what he's going to assign it's a false assumption the fact that god makes choices does not absolve humans of responsibility. That, that's a you should you should write that down maybe <laughs> no you don't have to write that down the fact that God makes choices does not absolve humans from responsibility. Paul never said God made choices, therefore do not desire or pursue gifts. He never he never he never said that anyway. I went through here this week and I read it carefully to make sure that he doesn't say anything like that. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, God made choices, therefore don't desire gifts. It's true, he said, God ultimately decides. It's true, he said, you won't all have the same gifts. It's true, he said, value every part of the body. But he has not been saying these things because he has a problem with the desire of gifts per se. What he has a problem with is, and what his battle is against, is those who desire gifts for the wrong reasons, those who desire gifts for the wrong, with the wrong motives, those who have the wrong perception of what those gifts indicate about your spiritual maturity. He never said don't desire gifts. But as soon as he says desire gifts, he stops himself. Because he knows we need a warning. He knows we need a warning.
1: And here's the second thing I want to say about this verse.
0: We need this warning because Paul knows that he needs to show us something first. Pursue the higher gifts, desire the higher gifts, but before, before you do that, I need to show you a more excellent way so that as you pursue gifts, you do it with a new perspective. And that's precisely what chapter 13 is going to provide for us. So we're going to go there next week and get that new perspective so that as we desire gifts, as we pursue gifts, we do it with the right mentality, unlike the Corinthians, who weren't desiring gifts for the sake of the building up of the church, but for the sake of self-exaltation, the sake of status, the sake of displaying spiritual maturity. There's a more excellent way. There's a more excellent way to live your
1: life. There's a more excellent way to give
0: your life. There's a more excellent way to think about your life. And if you want to see the perfect example of the kind of life that God would have each of us pursuing, then you look at this table. Because this table reminds us
1: of the man who lived the life that we have failed to live
0: on our behalf. This, this, this Jesus who we are celebrating here and, 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 and whom these symbols point to, who is present here with us today, this Jesus has showed us the more excellent way. He showed us what it looks like to live a life that says, I come to lay down my life for your good. And so he is a model to us of the kind of life that we ought to live. But you know what I want to make perfectly clear this morning is that before Jesus is a model for you, you have to realize that Jesus is a savior to you. Jesus didn't just come to say, let me show you how to live. Here's a really ethical, here's a really moral way to live your life. He didn't come to say that. He came to say, the life that you're supposed to live, you have completely failed to live.
1: And I'm going to save you. At
0: the cost of my own life. That's what this table represents. And so I'm going to ask the brothers to come up here. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up here. And we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. Uh, one, yeah, to remind us of the kind of life that we're called to live. But more fundamentally, to remind us of what Jesus has done for us because we failed to live that kind of life. We failed to be the kind of servants that we ought to be. We failed to love the way that we ought to love. We failed to serve God the way that we're called to serve God. And God said, I, that, there's a major problem there. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to take care of it. We thank you for showing us a more excellent way. We thank you for showing us the most excellent way. And we thank you for showing us the most excellent example and display of the most excellent being in the universe. We thank you for turning our hearts to you, and we pray for an increasing ability to know you and to worship you, that we would truly, from our hearts, increasingly from now until glory, say, how marvelous and how wonderful is the Savior's love. We thank you for giving us life. We thank you, Father, for sending your Son to be the mediator between God and man. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me give you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace and fill your heart with great satisfaction at a great Savior. And may that melt us and turn us into a people who are happy to care for one another in greater and greater measure. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen."